Amen. Well, it seems to me that that song kind of encapsulates so much of what we've learned the last three weeks in our study of this book of 1 Corinthians. And as we've dug into chapter 15, that second to last chapter, in which Paul comes to us and he talks to us all about the resurrection of the dead. And what is he saying? He's saying, listen, there's nothing that you experience in this life that will not be redeemed. There's no injustice that happens to you that will not be made right. There's nothing this world can take from you, including your life, that will not be restored. And not just restored, but restored a thousand times over. Made infinitely better. So as we continue now that study of this book, we come to the last chapter, to chapter 16, you know, and, and with it, with some measure of expectation, because if you've been traveling with us through this book, and it's been quite the journey, there's been a lot going on in this book, and so you kind of get to the end of the book, and you think, well, good grief, how is he going to wrap this thing up? And what am I going to say? That was the other question I got this week, so. But here's the deal, endings matter. In everything in life, how it ends matters. How a letter like this matters, ends, matters. Why? This is a Holy Spirit-inspired, authored through Paul by God Himself, carefully, intentionally, purposefully written letter. And so again, the expectation is, man, how will it end? And it ends very differently, it seems, than so much of the rest of the book. And the message today is different too as a result. So last week, how did Paul end? We traveled three weeks it took us through the book or through that chapter of 15 where he talks all about the resurrection of the dead and it culminated with a mission statement, with a statement that came to us and said, listen, here's what your life needs to be all about. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your work, your labor is not in vain. And I added, and knowing too that the work of the Lord is large enough to encompass everything you do, everything you are, everything you have. If you'll get up every day and remember who owns it all, including you, and you say, you know what, Lord? I'm living today on your mission. So how do I do that? Because everything that is in your mission is not in vain. Everything that is not in your mission, by definition, therefore, is in vain. And I'm not here to live a vain life. And I don't think you are either. Meaningless? No, don't sign me up for that. Sign me up for meaningful. And help me to understand that everything I do, everything I say, everything I have, everything I am, it can, the whole of it, be meaningful. This huge mission envelops and absorbs all of it. Redeems all of it. Transfers all of it into something that in the end matters for forever. And so last week he concluded this amazing conversation in chapter 15 by saying, let me give you a mission statement. It's be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, always producing, always being involved in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And now he'll bring the letter to the close in chapter 16 by saying, first of all, and here's what kind of heart that kind of engagement and that kind of mission is going to take. And I'll give you the punchline up front. It's a heart that is transformed by the gospel and therefore then made selfless, made sacrificial, made lovingly generous is the way that I'm going to put it. We have a lovingly generous God. Listen, for God so loved the world that he did what? What's the next word? He, he gave. It's a little bit lame. You guys were totally quiet. That was brutal. <laughs> He gave. Giving is not normal. It's not natural in any sense. 
We accumulate and we hoard. We're about us and our mission. And Paul's going to say, no, 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 there's a mission that's not vain. And here's the heart that it requires. It requires a heart like God's. One that has been captured by His gospel. Saved, yes. Put into a right relationship with God through faith in Christ, yes. But one, too, that engages in this rhythm of grace. That learns what it means to walk with Christ. That surrenders ever more and more territory of this heart unto Him. And allows God to shape your heart until your heart starts looking like His. For God so loved that He gave. It's a lovingly generous heart. That's what it takes. And then after he does that, mostly what he does is he talks about people. Okay, well, what kind of people? People that are known to him. Not people he's heard about and somebody said, hey, I think you ought to put this person's name in the Bible. You know, at the end of one of your letters. These are people who made an indelible mark on his life and ministry. Why? Because they had this kind of heart. They lived on that kind of mission. And they personally impacted this man so much so that he put them in what I'm going to call his Hall of Fame, which is the list of names that you find sometimes at the end of letters and that you certainly find at the end of this one. It's like Paul gets to the end and he goes, let me give you some examples. Because these people that he's writing to knew the folks on the list. You know, it's kind of like Timothy, it's kind of like Apollos, it's kind of like Stephanus, it's kind of like Achaicus, it's kind of like Fortunatus. Cool names, in case you're pregnant. It's kind of like... <laughs> He's saying, live like them. And here's the deal, he had a hall of fame, so do I. Whether you realize it or not, so do you. Keep that in mind, we'll come back to it. So having given us last week the mission statement, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, okay, now here's the kind of heart it takes to live out that kind of a mission. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And I want to stop and answer three questions. Collection of what? Because they're collecting something. Collection from whom? Because somebody's going to have to give it. And for whom? Like, who are the saints? It's a collection for the saints, but Paul, what are you talking about? He's coming to these Gentile, and that matters, people in this Gentile church, that matters, in a Gentile wealthy city, not unlike our own. And he's saying, look, here's the deal. <laughs> these Jewish believers in the Jewish city of Jerusalem are struggling massively, and one of the ways that we can help them out is to give them financial relief. So it's a collection of money from you Gentiles in that Gentile church for these people who are Jewish believers in Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. And you're like, well, why were they struggling? I mean, you know, what, what, what's the deal with them? Persecution is the answer to that question. It was not popular to be a follower of Jesus in the first century. It was most unpopular, at least initially, in the city of Jerusalem, and for understandable reasons, my goodness, that's the city that crucified Christ. And so then you can imagine, you know, these, these Jewish families who have, have for millennia, you know, worshipped at the temple and, and, and been involved in things like the Passover and, and had all of this, and, and now all of a sudden their friends or their neighbors or their kids or their parents are saying, hey, you know what? I think this Jesus Christ that all of our leaders put to death is the Christ. Like, in other words, I think that God vindicated him through resurrection. I actually believe he was raised from the dead and condemned their wicked act in the doing of it. More than that, he is the true Passover. More than that, 
He is the true temple. I mean, can you imagine how explosive that was within the context of these families? So to say, I'm going to follow Jesus in that city in particular, in that day and age, first century, shortly after the crucifixion, was to be disavowed by your family. It was to be disavowed by your friends. It was to be disavowed by everybody who did business with you. So like you had this happen in a little shop, you know, in the corner. Yeah, not anymore. Now we're not going there. So they're suffering massively, and Paul knows this. And so now he's coming to this church that's in a wealthy city and probably had some pretty wealthy people in the church, and he's saying, listen, guys, these folks over here in this very different city are suffering. We've got to do something to, to, to help them out. And you know, so like, here's what I want you to do. I mean, I want you to take up a collection on the, on the first day of every week, and, and, and I want you to set it aside you know, so like store it up. We're not going to take up one collection. We're going to do this week after week after week after week so that when I come to see you and he says to them, and I'm coming to see you and kind of here's my tentative itinerary. It's all ready to go when I get there. And so then when I get there, here's what we're going to do. You guys are going to elect a delegation of people and those people are going to take this really sizable gift to the city of Jerusalem, to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to bring them relief. And I, Paul, I'm going to write letters of introduction. I'm going to say, hey, here's who these guys are that I'm sending to you. And maybe, maybe, I don't know, we'll see, he says. Maybe I'll even go with them if it works out that way. I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. What do you think, he says to these guys. And now I want to process it from their perspective for a second. Because it's easy, I think, to see that maybe they wouldn't have been too excited about that. You know, what do I think? I think this is obviously dumb, and for two reasons. One, it involves money. And two, it involves money to give to Jewish people in Jerusalem. Now hang on. That's a little uncomfortable, right? But you need to understand this within the context of that history of first century Jerusalem. There was a lot of animosity in that first century world between Jewish people and Gentile people and between Gentile people and Jewish people. Guys, it went both ways. And when you work it through, you can kind of consider how that would happen. I mean, you can sort of understand it. The reality is that first century Jerusalem, fairly or unfairly, and I think a lot of it was unfairly, but nevertheless, it was famous for its racism and not just for people who had different colored skin than the Jews did then, but from anyone who was not a Jew. It was understood by all the Gentiles that they were unclean, that they were perceived as being defiled. But it was not understood altogether why. They didn't have the context by which to process why, from the perspective of the Jewish people in that day, they themselves were unclean and defiled, and therefore you can imagine the offense of that. Hey, how you doing? No, I can't shake your hand. Because your defilement is like contagious, ritually speaking. Well, do you want to come over for lunch or something? You know, I mean, we're kind of new to the neighborhood. We thought we'd get to know the neighbors. And you want, I can't go in your house. Because wherever you've sat down, that's defiled. Wherever you walk, that's defiled. The utensils that we would eat with, that's defiled. The food that you would prepare is not made in the right kind of kitchen for us. It's, you can understand that that could, without real understanding on the part of these people as to why this was happening, be offensive to them. 
And this was understood throughout the world because because of the diaspora, because of the spreading out of the Jewish people, there were communities within each one of these cities. So these people understood this. And so now Paul's coming to them and going, hey, um, you know, let's send them some money. And you can, you know, kind of understand that maybe that wouldn't be too exciting. What do you think? Okay, Paul, well, let's, let's talk about what I think. I think it'd be good for you to read back through the letter that you're ending with this. Because if you read back through your own letter, what you'd realize is that you've been playing whack-a-mole with us all the way through this really long letter. You've been hitting us over the head again and again and again and again and again on virtually every issue that you've raised. And your own letter illustrates the reality that as of the moment of this letter, we, the church at Corinth, are broken in our relationship with you, our founding apostle. We are not one. We are estranged right now. So now's the time that you think is the best time to A, hit us up for money, and B, for these folks who, all right, I mean, maybe they're transformed. We don't know them. But at least historically, yeah, we haven't really gotten along with or felt the warm fuzzies from. I think it's ridiculous. That's what I think. I don't think it's a good idea. Seems indelicate. And Paul's like, why? Seems to me that's exactly what the gospel would call you to do. Seems to me that that's exactly the kind of heart that the gospel would engender in you. Seems to me that it's not indelicate, it's not out of line, and in fact, if you have a problem with it, Paul's like, I'm thinking that the problem isn't mine. The problem is yours. What is the story of the gospel, if not the story of our generous God who so loved that He gave. And who did He give? (laughs) He gave His one and only Son, the most precious thing that He had to give, who parenthetically forsook all of the wealth, all of the riches, all of the benefits, all of the safety, all of the security, all of the service, all of the comfort of heaven to clothe Himself in our humanity and to come down into this broken, filthy planet to save, parenthetically, a broken, filthy people who had rejected Him. And rebelled against him. And how did he do it? By taking into himself all that is unclean in us, all of our defilement, past, present, and future, and putting it to death in his own person, in his own body, through his own suffering on a cross, and then being raised from the dead on the third day, as he said that he would, the author of life cannot be held by the grave, to defeat death, not just for himself, but in the end for everybody who believes in him, as we've spent the last three weeks talking about. Chapter 15. And then what did he do? He empowered his people by his spirit to go out and to take that gospel message to what kind of people? Because it's instructive to every different kind of person on the planet because his end game, his goal in the end, is upon the return of Christ to raise up one people made up of every different kind of person on the the planet. And here's the deal, unless or until you have personally experienced that gospel kind of loving generosity of God and have learned to walk a bit with Him and to let that have its full effect on you, to begin to shape your heart, you will never go on that mission and your work will be in vain. But when you have, you can't help but to go on that mission. And nothing is in vain. 
Here's what a personal experience of the loving generosity of God does. It lays hold of your heart and day by day, bit by bit, piece by piece, little by little, as you walk with Him in the rhythm of grace, daily and weekly and annually and so forth. It makes your heart like His heart. And what kind of a heart is that? It is a lovingly generous heart, which incidentally is exactly what it did for these people of the first century. And not just for them, but for their children, and then for their children's children, and then for their children's children's children. Like the first few centuries of Christians were these kinds of people, and those people literally overtook the Roman Empire for Christ. 8313, Christianity went from we're going to burn you at the stake and feed you to the animals and all of these other things to the religion of the Roman Empire. It's astonishing. You say, well, how did they do that? I'm glad you asked. Good question. In 1997, a professor of social sciences and the co-director of the Institute for the Study of Religion at Baylor University. And incidentally, before he was at Baylor, he was at University of California, Berkeley. Not exactly a conservative school. He wrote a book. His name is Dr. Rodney Stark. I'm going to read you the name of the book, and I want you to pay attention to the subtitle. The main title is The Rise of Christianity, Then There's a Colon. The subtitle is How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a few centuries. Nobody's disputing that it did become the dominant religious force. The question is how? And here's what he says. He concluded, among many other things, that, the, that these people in these first few centuries overtook the world for Jesus in their day, first of all, by being generous with their lives. And when I say with their lives, I mean that quite literally. It is a well-documented fact, and I've said this before in the past, that when the plagues and the epidemics struck the cities of the ancient Roman Empire, that the unbelievers fled the sick and dying. Everybody's tripping over themselves, rushing out of the city to get away from the sick and dying, except for the Christians. They're rushing in to the sick and dying. Why? Because they didn't understand that, hey, if you hang out with the sick and dying, you're probably going to get sick and die. No, they understood that perfectly. But they had seen death defeated in a man who had taken upon himself a far greater sickness than this plague. With a far greater death that is eternal, and who had himself died for them. So everybody else rushed out, they rushed in, and they rushed in to tend to these people and to pray for these people. They rushed in to preach to these people. They rushed in because they realized that even if this plague took the lives of these people, if they professed the same faith in Jesus Christ that these Christians who came in to lay down their lives alongside of them had, that even though they died, yet would they live. So they were generous with their lives. Just kind of goes downhill after that, doesn't it? It's like, I don't know what you're going to say next, but it's going to be less than that. These people overtook the world for Jesus in their day, secondly, by being generous with their rights. Christians in these first few centuries suffered massively and unjustly. They were targeted solely as a result of their religion. They were subjected to all kinds of indecent, awful, horrific things. And here's what they did not do. Unlike many of the other oppressed groups in the Roman Empire of their day, they did not incite riots. They did not commit acts of terror. Here's what they did do. They laid their lives down life after life after life after life after life after life after life, after life praying out loud 
for the people who took them. Just like Jesus did on the cross. Father, forgive them, he said, of the people that crucified him as he's hanging there, for they don't know what they're doing. They understood that this life is not the end. That's what's taken can be restored. And in fact, not just can, will be restored and far greater. And more than that, that God is altogether just and that our hope for justice is not one that ends when our lives here end. It's like, oh, holy cow, God better hurry up and bring justice because I'm about to die and I'd like to see it. Oh, well, you will see it. And it will be perfect. You will not be disappointed at that point. They're living as people who live beyond this life. Thirdly, these people overtook the world for Jesus in their day by being generous with their differences, specifically their racial differences, social differences, economic differences, educational differences, all the things that divide us as humanity. Here's what they did with those differences. They laid them down. They forsook them as worthless. Why? Because they understood that Jesus had suffered and died and risen again from the grave to redeem a people, one people, but made up of every different possible kind of person on the planet. It is a documented fact as well that the early church was the first institution in the history of the world to bring people together across all of these barriers that divide us. And then lastly, these people who turned their world upside down for the Lord did so by being generous with their money. That's one of the many items that the Emperor Julian in AD 360 uh, specifically attributed the almost viral spread of Christianity within the Roman Empire to. Like he's looking back upon it and going, what happened, you know? And he's identifying things that happened. He says these Christians took in strangers at their own cost. They buried the dead, meaning other people's dead at their own cost. They live sober lives. Not going to lie, that saves you money. So throwing that out there. But here's the biggie. They took care of their own poor, he said, and he said, they take care of our poor. These guys take care of everybody. And they pour themselves out selflessly to do that. And more than that, they regularly took in unwanted children. This is part of their practice. In that culture, in that day, and in that age, if you had a child with a disability born that way, they would let those children die. They would put them on the rocks, it was often said. They would let them die of exposure. I'm going to put you somewhere where I can't hear you cry and hear your cries wane to nothing. But I'm going to let you die. The Christians would go grab these kids. They'd bring them into their homes, they'd adopt them, they'd raise them at their own cost. No tax deductions. Kind of a big deal. But not just unhealthy kids, but perfectly healthy girls. There was quite the premium on having boys in that day. So much so that there are letters that, that we have, like a letter from a husband to a wife who's pregnant, and he's off on business, and he's not going to be back in time for the birth, and he says to her, look, if it's a boy, you keep the child. If it's a girl, put her to death. And then he just moves on with the conversation like he hadn't said anything unbelievably awful. You look at the demographics of the Roman Empire, that practice resulted over time in there being a disequilibrium between the sexes, meaning more men than females, except then when you look at the demographics of the church, it was the opposite. The Christians were going in and taking these kids, raising them as their own. That's how to change the world. Stuff like that. 
We can talk about it all day and night, but until we start to do stuff like that, we're not going to have the kind of impact that these people had. And so then, having ended chapter 15 with the big mission statement, be steadfast and movable, always abounding, always abounding, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, Paul says, and here's the kind of heart you need. It's a transformed heart. It's a gospel heart. It's a I'm walking with Jesus heart. It's a I'm sacrificing and dying to myself heart. It's a lay my life down for the good of the gospel and for other people heart. It is a lovingly generous heart that looks like the heart of the Lord. So that's the kind of heart we need to do that kind of mission. But then he closes the letter by talking about people. People with that kind of heart. People with that kind of heart who had made huge impacts on him. It's his Hall of Fame. or Well, it's part of it. Other letters name other people too. But I wondered, you know, as I mean, if I'm putting this thing together and just sort of thinking it through, who's in your Hall of Fame? Who would you identify? You know, as I thought about mine, I mean, it's huge. It's just we could, there's not enough pizza at Domino to sustain us in terms of food if I just start listing people off. So don't worry, I'm not going to do that completely. But I, I just thought about some of the people. And there's some obvious people and Maybe at least to some of you, not, maybe not so obvious people. But, you know, my wife is in my Hall of Fame, and it's hard for me to share this because she's here <clears throat> easier at the other services. But I will tell you plainly, I would not be the person that I am. I would not be here doing this. I cannot imagine where I'd be, honestly, but for the work of the Lord through her. In me. She did not marry a pastor, guys. She married a lawyer. She expected a very different life. And the Lord had a better plan. My parents are in my Hall of Fame. And I don't just say that because my mother listens to this every Tuesday. She does. So, hi, mom. So, there you go. Shout out to her. And I do value my place in the will just in case there's any, <laughs> any question about that at all. But, you know, we are all of us broken as parents. Um, we all of us advantage and disadvantage our kids. We're assets and liabilities. But some of us have been massively advantaged, albeit by not perfect people. And I will tell you, I have been massively advantaged in life through the parents that I have. And I'm hugely grateful and thankful for them. But then there are other people, too. There's a guy named Pastor John Hawkins. You don't know who that is, but I'll tell you who it is. He's the pastor of the first church that Beth and I joined after Morgan was born, our oldest, and we then moved with a three-week-old child who became colicky on the drive from Chicago to Boynton Beach, okay? I don't know what we were thinking. Hey, let's move three weeks after the first child is born. That was insane, and I'm not a believer that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I just think it kills you younger. Like you can live to 80, you can live to 80, or you can be 75 because you did something like that. That's... But we moved to Boynton. We found a church. It was called, brace yourself, the Palm Beach Baptist Temple. And I had never heard of a Baptist temple. I still don't know exactly what a Baptist temple is, but I'm going to tell you what that church was. It was awesome. It was full of the Holy Spirit. It was full of people who loved Jesus and loved each other and wanted to make a difference in the world. And it had a pastor that as I've become a pastor, I've come to appreciate more and more and more. I have no idea how this man did absolutely everything that he did. 
It's unreal. Like, I, I preach three times now in a weekend. Okay, but one message. He preached on Sunday morning, and then a different message on Sunday night, and then a different message on Wednesday night. I'm a dead man right there. I don't make 45 if I got to do that. He created the curriculum for all the Sunday school. He was at every meeting. He led everything. The guy was magnificent. He was amazing. He visited everybody in the hospital. I mean, I'm like this tall next to that guy. And here's what else he did. He collected up some of us young guys. I think I was 29. And he just sort of folded us into his routine. So he'd call me up. He called me up on a Monday. He said, hey, Tom, I'm going to go visit a couple of families that came to visit the church for the first time yesterday. Just wondering if you want to go with me. Okay, listen, I would have gone over to help him paint his house if that meant that I could hang out with him. Do you want to trim the bushes? Should I show up early and wash your car before we go? Anything this guy asks, pretty much, I'm in. So I'd go, and I, you know, I had no utility. I'm a bump on the log. I'm just hanging out with him, doing whatever it is that he was going to be doing anyway, and learning by osmosis, by observation. Tom, would you teach a Sunday school class? Okay, I had never taught a Sunday school class. I had attended hundreds of Sunday school classes, and when he asked me to teach one, I then wished I had paid attention in those hundreds of Sunday school classes. <laughs> I didn't know anything. He gave me the answers to the questions, like, just walk in cold, you can lead this class. I bought a commentary, man. I studied like six hours. I'm going to be ready to teach this class, you know, way overprepared. I guess it went well because he called me the next day and said, wow, I heard your class was great, which told me that he was checking up on me, which was a good idea, actually. He said, now I'm wondering if you'll just teach that class every week. It's yours. Will you take it? Uh, okay. My wife taught a class too. About six months later, he said, you know, we're going to do a thing like half day on a Saturday. And, and one of the segments, like a 45-minute deal, I want to teach the teachers how to better teach a class. And I'm wondering if you, now that you've been doing it six months, would do that. Would you lead that for us? Oh, man. You know, I mean, some of these people have been teaching for 20 years. You think I spent time getting ready for this first Sunday school class. I mean, I'm taking like days off to get ready for this thing. But I guess it went well. And so within that church, I started having people coming to me, including that man, and saying, you know, I realize you've got a lot invested in this whole other career thing that you're trying to get up and off the ground here. Um, but have you considered that maybe you should do this vocationally? Like you should be some kind of a pastor. And I had considered it. So right around that time, I started going to seminary, and part of what I discovered is that I was Presbyterian after all. So that's, that it was a discovery for me, but, but please note what I said about that Baptist church. That's where God called me into the ministry. And, you know, we get all uptight about our differences. We agree on about 97% of things. Let's keep in mind that we are all on the same team, folks. Really, we are. So anyway, I'm going to Knox Seminary. I'm realizing, I think I'm supposed to be a PCA pastor. So that's about as narrowly defined as you, know, you can get. It's very specific. So that's what I'm supposed to do, which meant that we needed to start looking for a PCA church. So we started looking for a PCA church up in Palm Beach County because we're in Boynton. But through Knox Seminary, I took a preaching class and showed up. And the professor's name was Dr. David Dorst. He was the senior pastor of Rio Vista Community Church. I'd never heard of him, never heard of this place. Didn't know him from Adam. Took the class. The class ended. And he wrote me this long, handwritten, long, flowing note. And if you ever received 
a handwritten note from Dave, it's like getting a letter from Picasso. I mean, his handwriting is unbelievable. My handwriting looks like an intoxicated third grader wrote whatever. <laughs> Doesn't matter how hard I try to get, it will not work for me. So if I send you a really personal note and I type it, you're welcome. He wrote me a really nice note. It was very kind and affirming. And then he said at the end, you know, hey, I'm not going to be the professor and you're not the student anymore. I'd like to just get to know you as a guy. Could we do that? I thought, could we do that? It's like the coolest thing ever. I'd paint his house too. <laughs> what else do you need done? So we set up lunch and I came and I parked across the street at the school and there was no signs at the time, which, I mean, it's hard to find the church office. If there are no signs, like this is a little confusing the first time you show up, some of you are going, yes, it is. And I came walking in and at the time, Domino's was not there. This is like 19, 20 years ago. It was an abandoned, broken down steak and egg. So my first comment to Dave, having just got onto the campus when I finally came in was, what is that thing out there? I was indignant. I'm insulted by that thing. How do you guys not own that thing? That's like, you know, and so the Lord heard that. And so we still don't own it. So that's, it's my fault. (laughs) We don't own that. And it's all about me. So I'm sorry, but we became friends. And as we were looking for PCA church up there, our oldest daughter spent the weekend with my folks one weekend down in Miami. So we're in Boynton. She's in Miami. And I said, look, why don't we go down to my new friend's church, you know, Rio Vista? I don't know. We'll check it out. It's in between. Then we'll go get Morgan and we'll drive home. And so we showed up and this church had two services at the time, a traditional service in here with about, no kidding, 15 people and a contemporary service across the street in our school gym So minus 15, the whole church fit in the gym. And it was wonderful. So we're coming, and I'm jacked because I'm going to get to hear the preaching professor preach. And we park and show up, and we walk in, and he's not preaching. Some guy named Dave Ingram was preaching. (laughs) Dave Ingram was an associate pastor here for 19 years. Uh, Mr. Everything, really at our school and our church. And uh, he went to be with the Lord about two and a half years ago from cancer, but Dave was preaching that day. And I was disappointed until I heard Dave preach, Dave Ingram preach. He didn't like preaching. I don't know if you guys knew that. It's just not a thing that he enjoyed. But he was wonderful at it. Great, great communicator. Really, authentically, a very good communicator. And we fell in love with this place. You know, the Spirit of the Lord was here. I mean, we woke up the next week and said, I don't know, it's only 42 miles. Let's go. (laughs) And so we did. And we just would drive 42 miles here and back and here and back. It wasn't so bad, except when they did construction on 95. That was a bummer. And then my law practice moved down here, and the Lord really just moved us here, and we became very involved here at Rio. And I would meet with Dave Doris for a couple of hours every Tuesday at lunch, every Tuesday for about... Four years maybe, all in. And so when he said, look, it's time for me to move on, he said to me, I think you should follow me. And I'm like, I'm not even done with school, but I was close enough. So we got all that worked out. And the session of the congregation said, yeah. So I went from preaching three times a year with four months to prepare to pretty much every week. And my wife went from, I'm going to be a pastor's wife someday to I'm going to be a pastor's wife in a month. Pretty intense. 
And I inherited a staff when Dave Dorse left that included Dave Ingram, a guy who was 12 years older than me and about 45 years ahead of me in terms of life experience and ministry, and yet who had the humility to say, no, 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 you're the number one guy, and my position is here. It's behind you, Tom. It's to walk with you. And that's what he did. Dave and Barb walked with us for years, counseled us, encouraged us, came to me when I'm going, I don't think I can do this, and talked me off the cliff. (laughs) I remember walking into Dave's office several times saying, man, I just need to talk to somebody. And he was that guy. It was wonderful, God's gift to us. And God's gift to you. And about two and a half years ago, Dave and Barb Ingram taught us how to suffer. Dave got cancer, and it was not a curable form of cancer. Nobody gets cured from this kind. The best you can do is slow it down. And we prayed that the Lord would directly deliver him, but it became apparent at some point, we believe, by the way, that God does do those things, but it became apparent that God was going to deliver him by a different means. He was going to deliver him by taking him home. And the greater miracle, I think, that the Lord worked in their lives, not just Dave's, was the work of faith and perseverance through that suffering and through that loss. I remember Dave Ingram saying, God has given us this work to do. And that struck me because suffering is a work that God gives us to do. I mean, think about the Lord. He's referred to as the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. Is there anything closer to the heart? And are you ever closer to the heart of God than when you suffer? Maybe even most particularly when it doesn't seem to make any sense. They resolved to do two things in that season. Knowing that death was coming, they said, we will love one another well, and we will look for every opportunity to show forth God's faithfulness in and through the whole of this experience to a whole community of people called Rio Vista Community Church and Bethany Christian School, all of whom, if you think about it, were watching. And they persevered. They did it by God's grace. So, those are a few of the many people in my Hall of Fame. And I wonder today who is in yours. And I ask you that for two reasons. Number one, because I think it would be really cool if you told them that. Like John Hawkins, you know. I mean, he would never have known had I not sat down with him and told him that he was in my Hall of Fame. I I got the chance to do that. With each of these guys, I had the chance to do that, which is a great privilege and great honor, but he just would have been cruising through life. Oh, Tom Hendricks, yeah, I kind of remember him. I mean, I I think he did some teaching for us. That's it. No, no, my whole life has changed because of God's work through you. Everything different. And I think it would be good for you to spend some time thinking about those people and specifically about their heart and to let that provoke you to seek the same kind of heart. To walk with the same Savior. To draw near to Him in the same kinds of ways through really the same rhythm. And to be shaped and molded into the same kind of people. People that leave an indelible mark on the lives and ministries of other people. And not for your glory or for mine, not for our benefit, but for the glory of Christ and for the benefit 
of his kingdom. So I close with this, five questions. Number one, have you been transformed by the generous love of God? So like, first of all, have you come to faith in this Jesus Christ who lived, suffered, died, rose again from the dead to pay the penalty of the sins of everyone who simply comes and claims the forgiveness found only through him? Because if you haven't, that's your challenge today. But if you have, are you walking with him? Are you drawing near to Him? Are you treating Him as something more than, okay, I have salvation, but as Lord, as one who is shaping your heart? And here's some questions you can ask in that regard. How are you being generous with your life? In other words, can you name an area in your life where you're rushing in, okay, and it's unnatural to do? Nobody will rush into that. That's too messy. Nobody will rush into that. That's too time-consuming. Nobody will rush into that. That's too expensive. Nobody will rush into that. Oh, good grief. You know, that's the thing to avoid. Where, what are you rushing into? That by nature, humanity rushes away from. It's too ugly. We don't want to look at it. Secondly, how are you being generous with your rights? What enemies are you praying for instead of fighting? Think about that. How are you being generous with your differences? What form of pride or prejudice, if it exists in you, exists in you, and that you need to crucify and lay down once and for all, recognizing that we are all of us ruined, all of us made of the same clay. And the only thing that makes us precious, and it does, is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. And that love makes us equally precious. It destroys every barrier, every wall, every line that by nature we draw between ourselves because somehow we want to pump up ourselves by putting down others. It's not right. And then lastly, how are you being generous with your money? Because here's our nature. It's to keep. It's to hoard. It's to take. It's to save. It's to stash away. It's to say we trust in God and to disobey Him in every area that He calls us to be generous in. Do you tithe? Do you give beyond the tithe? Do you care about other people with your money? One of the things that I heard about Dave Ingram after his funeral, somebody came to me and said, you know, I'll never forget that guy. He said, I was having lunch with him and I was just kind of like down on my luck, so to speak. You know, I, I, I needed 300 bucks to make rent. He said, Dave took out his checkbook and personally wrote me a check for $300. He didn't pass it through the church. He never got a tax deductible donation for it. He just wrote me the check and said, here, and Dave was not financially a wealthy man, but oh, was he rich. And oh, is he richer still. So bottom line, we're called to a mission. And it is a mission that requires a kind of heart that we do not, by nature, possess. We possess the opposite of the kind of heart that we need to go on this mission. And here's how we get that heart, by giving ourselves completely to the Lord and walking with Him day by day, step by step, and allowing Him to transform us. And He will then take our lives and all our work and make them, by His grace and power, not in vain. So do that. Consider that. That's got to be the greatest opportunity out there, don't you think? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank You for, um, Lord, Your own heart. God, it is simply dumbfounding to contemplate 
that you yourself would condescend to rescue us. Lord, there is nothing in us that is lovely. There is nothing in us that is deserving of that. Indeed, everything is quite to the contrary. And yet, as a display of your own humility, for the sake of your own glory, you have placed your love upon a people from every language, every nation, every race, every tribe, every different socioeconomic status. You have placed your love upon a people, and for that people, you have sacrificed all that we who have nothing to offer can have everything freely through faith in You. Let that lay hold of us. Let that make us different. Let us recognize the opportunity that we have to live our lives in such a way that for forever they actually matter. It is not in vain when it is done for You. And then for Your glory, And for the sake of humanity, other people like us who need what we've found, use us to do it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.